Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 521 for the 4th of December, 2016. This week, you can help crooks plant malware on your computer, but I can't exactly recommend doing that. I can, however, share some warning signs to watch for. The 2017 version of Adobe Dreamweaver has some exciting new features, but also some disappointing bugs. In short circuits, research suggests that many people are willing to use online chat sessions and even automated chatbots instead of working with humans, but they still want to be able to reach a real live person when they need one. Real live people are available at AskIt, a free service by CompTIA, an IT industry trade organization. In spare parts, only on the website, Lots of Android users are at risk, and the culprit is malware known as Gooligan. And Microsoft has made another large investment in wind-generated electricity for some of its data centers. Midway through Thanksgiving week, nine spams of two types made it to my anti-spam filter. Hundreds of spams may have been deleted along the way, but these nine showed up in MailWasher Pro. Most were already marked as spam, but I let them all come through to my email program so that I could take a look at them. By the end of the week, my collection was approaching 50. Several were fake renewal notices for services I've never used. These are harmless except for those who believe that they've received an actual invoice for a service they want. These things look like a legitimate invoice, complete with options for 1, 2, 5, and 10-year service, and new, a lifetime offer for just $500. Does the offering company actually do anything? Well, probably. It's likely that they have some automated processes that submit your website to hundreds of search engines. Now, there are only a few legitimate search engines that really count, and they generally recognize and reject automated submissions. So your payment of $75 to $500 is wasted. I took a look at the text at the bottom of the message. It says, By accepting this offer, you agree not to hold DS liable for any part. Note that this is not a bill. This is a solicitation. You are under no obligation to pay the amounts stated unless you accept this offer the information in this letter contains confidential and or legally privileged information from the Notification Processing Department of the DS, 3501 Jack Northrop Avenue, Suite F, 9238, Hawthorne, California, 90250, USA. This information is intended only for the use of the individual or individuals named above. There is no pre-existing relationship between DS and the domain mentioned above. This notice is not part of any associated with a continuation of services for domain registration. Search engine submission is an optional service that you can use as part of your website optimization and alone may not increase the traffic to your site. 
If you do not wish to receive further updates from DS, reply with Remove to unsubscribe. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to work. If you are not the intended recipient, you are hereby notified that disclosure, copying, distribution, or the taking of any action in reliance on the contents of this letter is strictly prohibited. I got another similar offer from another company. That one looked a bit more legitimate because it's actually formatted like a real invoice, but I noticed it said expiration notice and expiration proposal date instead of invoice and statement. The companies that send out these fake renewal notices are very careful to stay within the bounds of legal solicitations, but they're still illegitimate. The offers are legal. They are convincing enough that an overworked accounts payable clerk might accidentally mistake the offer for a legitimate invoice and pay it. The worst that can happen, though, is you'll be out whatever money you paid. There are lots of more serious threats. You'll see images of three of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. These are attempts to plant malware on your computer. You have to do the heavy lifting, though. The fraudsters can be reasonably good at enticing you to do what they want, though. Let's take a look at them. The first one is so clearly fraudulent that it's hard to believe anyone would ever fall for it. For one thing, the sender has the domain local-hospital.com. Now, if you've ever spent any time in a hospital, you know they have names. The message was clearly composed by someone without much knowledge of English grammar or punctuation, and the subject line, Oh, please pay attention! Well, that's just laughable. The same is true for the delivery notification message that I received purportedly from FedEx, but the sender's address was devilsparadise.com. The ID number, supposedly a FedEx number, is five digits. You've probably noticed FedEx numbers are a lot longer than that. This time the attachment is purportedly a Microsoft Word file, but it could be a zip file. On the so-called Cyber Monday, I received three messages that contained the same text. Dear William F. Blinn, we have detected a suspicious money ATM withdrawal from your card. For your security, we have temporarily blocked the card. All the details are in the attachment. Please open it when possible. The message mentioned no bank. One came from what appeared to be an Internet cafe. The second had an address that indicated Brazil was the country of origin. The third came from Vietnam. I don't have any banking accounts in Vietnam or Brazil. I do have to give the scammer responsible for these an extra point or two for timeliness, though, but I still didn't open the attachments. The top award, though, goes to the scammer who sent a message that claims to be from the Standard Bank, which is a bank in South Africa. It's a real bank. A payment has been made to my account. Oh, my. What account? And the crook who sent it was smart enough to spoof a standardbank.co.za address. The scammer also uses standard bank graphics and links for support. But the attachment is a zip file. Now, before we look at how a zip file can be dangerous, let's consider one more spam that, while not very good in presentation, is distressingly convincing unless you know what to look for. It claims to be a payment reminder from Macmillan Distribution in Bassingstoke, England. It seems they want a payment of either $666.39 or £666.39, but it represents it with an upside-down exclamation point followed by 
So that's clue number one. Or maybe it's clue number two, and the first clue would be the fact that I haven't purchased anything from Macmillan Publishing. That might be less of a clue if the message reached an accounts payable person in a big business, but one would hope that such a person would know enough to find an invoice before paying, and that, of course, is the exact point of the attached zip. It claims to offer additional information to be the missing statement. So a conscientious accounts payable clerk would possibly open the zip file, then open the file contained in the zip file, and thereby infect the computer. A more conscientious clerk would examine the message and see clue number one. Another clue is the number in the subject line. Macmillan has been around for a long time. If A slash C is supposed to be an invoice number, it's pretty low. If A slash C is supposed to be an account number, it'd have to be from a very old customer. Macmillan was founded in the mid-1800s. But the most convincing part of the document is the from line. It says Donnie.Pangborn at Macmillan.com. It cites the Macmillan domain. But a well-trained employee would know not to trust that information because it can be easily changed. And by easily, I mean the average high school student would be able to do it, or find out how with a bit of searching. So I did a little checking and found the IP address of the originating server. That's something that is almost impossible to spoof. I obtained that by examining the message source. The message came from IP address 39.54.165.59 on port 59453. Now that port number is pretty unusual, but let's disregard that for now. So I used Newstar's Whois IP lookup tool to find out who the IP address is assigned to. And to my great lack of surprise, I found it is an IP address that belongs to the Pakistan Telecommunications Company. At that point, the attentive and conscientious accounts payable clerk would realize the message for what it is, a fraud. So let's consider the mechanism. Zip files by themselves are harmless, but they can contain malicious content. I downloaded a couple of the zip files and found that they contained JavaScript files. The zip files don't automatically extract their contents, and even if they did, the JavaScript file would be harmless until the user opened it. So you have to make two mistakes. First, you have to actually download the zip file and extract the contents. Second, you need to double-click the JavaScript file. But how does that work? Well, it's surprisingly simple. Double-clicking a JavaScript file, which actually might be disguised as something else, will launch the Windows script host and execute the script. The bad news is that scripts run by Windows script host are not sandboxed the way they might be in a browser. And you might not even know it's a JavaScript file. That's because by default Windows hides extensions of what it considers known file types. JavaScript is of course a known file type. And this is one of the most idiotic decisions Microsoft has ever made and they continue to stick with it. It is the first thing I change on any new Windows system I set up. If you hide extensions, a file called mystuff.doc.js will appear to be mystuff.doc in Windows Explorer. This kind of obfuscation goes all the way back to the original I Love You malware that caught a lot of people, including me, by surprise many years ago. Bottom line here, be careful what you download. Be even more careful about which files you choose to open. 
If you've never heard of a bank, there's a slim chance that you have an account there. The just-released version of Adobe Dreamweaver CC 2017 includes many new and useful features, but it also includes some significant bugs that suggest some problems exist in Adobe's internal quality assurance program, as well as with external beta testers. One of Dreamweaver's new functions is pure genius. Whichever pages you had open when you closed Dreamweaver will open again when you start the program. Relax, if you don't like that feature, you can just turn it off. But I think most people will probably love it. After all, what are you most likely to want to do when you open Dreamweaver? Right, continue with the page you were working on previously. Still, it's surprising and different. But before you turn it off, give it a chance. I found lots to like here, and a few things to dislike. The interface now offers four levels of contrast from light to dark, but it's not always easy to read the code view side of the screen. I like the dark interface, but the code panel displays comments in dark gray text on a black background. Now, maybe somebody with younger eyes would be able to read that, uh, but me? Uh, not so much. There's probably a way to tweak the code view settings. So far, I haven't found it, but I haven't looked very hard. Yet. A code view option for multiple cursors is hard to explain, but easy to understand once you've used it. If you need to write the same thing on multiple lines simultaneously, there is no longer a need to copy a line and paste it several times. Just expand the cursor to cover several lines and start typing. If you're familiar with the column mode of Ultra Edit Studio, you'll immediately understand this. The new version seems to look more toward coders, and I think that's a good thing. Today's websites depend more on coding than on what can be accomplished with a WYSIWYG editor. Dreamweaver has been the best of both worlds for many years, but it has concentrated more on the design view and the live view side. This time around, the coders get some love. Updates to the code editor are impressive. If you're new to coding, you really should learn what's going on behind the scenes, and the improved code hints will help you do that. Experienced coders expect hinting because it makes the process faster. Novices will learn from the code hinting, which isn't limited to just HTML. CSS, JavaScript, and other web standards are included, too. The coding improvements are not without problems, though. Dreamweaver has a code view and a design view or live view. The screen can be fully code view or fully design view or live view. The split screen can couple the design view or live view with a code panel. The code view has been updated significantly in this version, and that's where I've encountered the biggest bugs. There's a code view misalignment. It seems to me that the code panel should keep the edit point either aligned with the design view or place it around the middle of the code view screen. That's not what happens, though. The active lines in code view seem frequently to be at the bottom of the screen, and selecting a control can show just the first line of the control instead of the entire control, which is, of course, what you'd want to see. For example, and you'll have to take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website to see this, or just trust me. For example, you double-click on an audio control. The entire control is selected, but only the first line is shown in code view. Selecting a control generally means you want to do something with it, 
and doing something with it now requires the unnecessary step of scrolling to get the code fully into view. I've also seen some copy-paste problems in the code panel. There are some instances in which copying and pasting lines in code view seems not to work as expected. This is a situation I haven't been able to replicate reliably, even though I've seen it happen several times. A code section that is surrounded by comment tags doesn't reliably replace an equivalent section. The workaround involves copying code to the buffer, selecting the code in the target area and deleting it, and then pasting the copied code from the buffer. In the past, all that was unnecessary. Probably the most frustrating bug involves what's called the class selector. I reported this bug to Adobe. It has been confirmed as a known issue. Several other users have indicated that it's a significant problem for them. Class selectors are used to apply cascading stylesheet classes to sections of code. Modern sites may have hundreds of selectors, and previously, finding one of them was easy. The user simply had to start typing the first few letters of the selector name. Now it's necessary to scroll through the list in the slowest way possible. It's also no longer possible to tag multiple selectors, even though this is something that's useful for many sites that are based on frameworks. CodeView, in fact, has the largest number of known issues, and many of these involve fairly basic functionality. There's a list of eight of them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I have said many times that Adobe uses agile development procedures better than any other software developers. Not this time, though. But none of the problems I've found, or the ones that Adobe lists as known issues, are deal-breakers. They are disappointing, though. On balance, there's a lot more good than bad. But there's a lot more bad than I've come to expect from Adobe. In short circuits, looking for customer service? Don't pick up the phone. The increasingly common method of providing support to customers is online chat. But according to a recent survey, we still want to talk to humans when the chat system doesn't suffice. Driven by millennial shoppers embracing new technology like chatbots and messaging apps, chat has surpassed phone and email as the most popular way for consumers to interact with retailers. That's according to a new study from customer engagement software and services provider 24-7. A retailer's guide to chat shows that 29% of consumers prefer to interact with retailers through online chat. That's what 26% said. Or using messaging apps. That's what 3% said when they're making a purchase. About 29% prefer to use the phone. 27% prefer email to communicate with retailers. Based on a survey of more than 1,000 consumers, the study highlights the important role that millennials are playing in this shift. Among consumers aged 18 to 34, 37% chose chat as their favorite way to contact companies. Less than a quarter ranked phone or email as their top choice. As consumers use more messaging apps in their personal lives, the study suggests that chat is emerging as a primary communication channel for retailers as well. According to 24-7's Chief Marketing Officer Scott Horn, messaging apps are valuable for retailers that want to enhance relationships with consumers, particularly younger buyers. With chat technology rapidly evolving, he said, it's becoming a much more efficient and engaging customer service channel. 
The growing use of messaging apps by businesses has the potential to further accelerate the trend toward chat as a primary way to communicate with retailers. More than a quarter of consumers say they are open to interacting with a company through a messaging app, and that number jumps to nearly 40% for millennials. Why the change? The main advantages of chat are convenience, access to conversation history, and ease of use. When asked to weigh which retail technology would most improve their shopping experience, 21% said receiving proactive order updates through messaging apps would be most useful. And not all chat sessions even involve a human on the other end. About 40% of consumers say they would be willing to have automated conversations with a chatbot. Use of these automatons has increased as artificial intelligence has improved. In fact, about 10% of millennials say they would prefer to deal with a robot instead of a person. That might not be such a good indicator for society overall, you think? But maybe we can relax. Humans do continue to play an important role in customer experience. More than 60% of consumers say that they prefer working with a human instead of a robot at all times. About 13% say they will work with a chatbot as long as they can easily escalate the conversation to a human representative. When it comes to resolving post-sale problems, 40% of the survey respondents said they would choose the phone. 21% would select the chat option. Horn says the most effective use of new methods will provide effortless transitions to human agents when the situation requires it. Consumers still value the human touch, he said, in their interaction with retailers, even as AI improves their customer experience. At surveys based on 1,007 U.S. consumers, it was conducted late in September, and if you'd like to read the full report, you'll find it on the 24-7 website in PDF format. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Speaking of support, AskIt is a new, free, on-demand support service that claims to help anyone who has a technical question. The service recently launched a beta version. The service is free. It provides technical assistance and support for common everyday issues and problems related to computing, connectivity, peripherals, security, and software. More than 2,000 IT professionals have been certified by the parent company, CompTIA, a provider of vendor-neutral skills certifications for the global IT workforce. Questions asked on the company's website are routed directly to a CompTIA certified technician. The service is available day or night, weekends and weekdays. So how is it free? Well, it seems that it's a foundation operated by the philanthropic arm of CompTIA. CompTIA is an IT industry trade organization, but donations are also accepted. CompTIA certified technology professionals at ASKIT can address a range of technology topics across a variety of devices, including computers of all types, printers, smartphones, and tablets. The service provides answers and solutions to common questions and problems. Some of the assistance areas include internet and networking, internet connectivity, speeds, web browsers, email, things like that. Software and hardware, printers, webcams, USB devices, laptops, desktop PCs, smartphones, tablets, productivity software. They also cover operating systems, including Windows, Linux, Apple, Android, iOS, Internet browsers, and networking equipment. 
and, of course, cybersecurity, where they will provide assistance in spotting potential security issues so that personal information stays personal. Connections are encrypted. The chat history is visible only to you and the tech professional you connect with. No individual information is posted to a user forum, and they say it won't be shared with any other Ask It users. If you'd like to learn more, check out the website. It's askitnow.com. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And while you're there, check out Spare Parts, which is only on the website. This week, lots of Android users are at risk, and the culprit is malware known as Gooligan. And Microsoft has made another large investment in wind-generated electricity for some of its data centers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.